This episode of Talk Flagler is brought to you by Xanadu Pet Care, a local professional dog walking and pet sitting service right here in Palm Coast and Flagler County. Xanadu Pet Care holds licenses with the City of Palm Coast, Flagler County, and the State of Florida to provide pet sitting and dog walking services, also holding insurance coverage from Pet Care Insurance. Striving to provide expert care for all pets from the domesticated to the exotic, call Xanadu today for all your pet needs. Visit xanadupets.com, X-A-N-A-D-U-P-E-T-S.com, or call 904-497-6970. Ask for Emma. Talk Flagler, your look into local personalities, businesses, and everything west of the beach waves. I'm your host, Chris Gollin, chief political reporter for Ask Flagler. And on this episode, we're talking to Florida State Senate candidate Heather Hunter. Heather is running against incumbent Travis Hudson to serve Florida's 7th Senate District in Tallahassee. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Heather. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, Chris. Uh, Yes, my name is Heather Hunter. I'm running for Florida State Senate District 7, which falls in St. John's County. Uh, Flagler County and part of Volusia County. Um, I'm a recent college graduate. I'm 22 years old and I am uh, ready to flip Florida blue. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background and what was your journey to becoming a state Senate candidate? Sure. Um, So as I said, I I just graduated college. um, And during that time in college, I, I went into my freshman year the, at the 2016 election. Um, and so that kind of, um, it, it gave me a outlet, a political outlet um, that I was able to kind of, you know, campaign, protest, just do everything, kind of get my feet wet in politics. Um, and going on from the 2016 election, I got involved in um, some local campaigns during the 2018 election, as well as um, the governor's election in 2018. Um, I then became uh, president of the Flagler College Democrats as well as the Florida College Democrats. Um, I interned at the Democratic Environmental Caucus of Florida during session this past year. Um, I ended up becoming the treasurer of the Democratic Environmental Caucus of Florida. Um, and we wanted to um, create an effort to fill every race in the state of Florida, every unchallenged race. And somehow I got involved in that. And, you know, the president of the environmental caucus asked me to run in this district because she knows that this is my home district. This is where I grew up. This is where I went to college. And, um, she knows I would have a good chance at winning in this area. And so I was, I, you know, I said yes. And, you know, here I am today. Awesome. So uh, tell us, where where did you go to college and uh, what did you study? Yeah, I went to Flagler College in St. Augustine and I studied political science and pre-law. Oh, very cool. So uh, moving on to the topic of electability. So obviously in Florida, in Central Florida, historically incumbent Republicans have done well in re-election campaigns. So this time around, what do you think it's going to take to unseat state Senator Hudson? Well, I feel like 2020 has been a year of unknowns, you know, um, with the whole pandemic and everything. And 
it's really shown us um, where our leaders lie, you know, and I don't think many of our leaders lie in the, in the correct um, focus, if that makes sense. Um, I don't think that they are dedicated to their constituents and they're more so um, in corporate interest pockets, I feel like. Um, and I think that is happening with my opponent. I think that, you know, he's come, become engulfed with um, corporate entities and has forgotten that the people who elected him exist. And so I am running on a campaign to bring the people back into politics. And I want to make sure that they are involved in every single decision I make. Um, I'm unbought and uncorrupted. I, and I plan to continue that when I'm elected. And I think that makes me quite electable. I think we are missing putting the people back in power in the state of Florida. And I think when I'm elected that I will be able to empower people once again. Awesome. So, um, so yeah, your, your strategy on, um, on policy, you, you certainly have a, a very progressive uh, platform. It's uh, been in line on the national stage more. It's more, in my opinion, more of a Bernie Sanders platform than uh, maybe a, a Hillary Clinton platform. If uh, I don't know if that, that's a fair assumption to you, but uh, definitely, yeah, definitely a lot. Like Medicare for all is a uh, big on your uh, on your website. You um, definitely break down every. You have like six, no, sorry, nine categories and like like a thousand little uh, little policies underneath each of them. Very comprehensive. So, like I say, your strategy has definitely been. It, it appears to lean on the progressive side of things. Um, and on the other hand, you've had um, in the state house race, um, Democratic candidate Adam Morley, you know, he's gone on record to say he thinks this is the year he might be able to appeal to Republicans a little bit more. So it definitely seems like there's a bit of a differing strategy between the two campaigns. But uh, so you think there you think there will be enough progressive voters within state Senate District 7 to um, that can be empowered to carry you over Hudson? Well, I think, so this race is definitely obviously a difficult one being in a red district, but if we can get as many uh, blue voters out as possible as well as flipping NPAs onto our side and even uh, Republicans, we can make a difference. And I think, I think that starts by, you know, showing them the facts of what their current incumbent has done or has not done, especially this year during the pandemic, during the unemployment crisis, during the recession, and just showing them how absent he's been. I think that should be a decider more than anything in this race. All right. So, um, and in, in talking about, uh, like say the, um, the issues on your website, it's, um, it gets very, very much into it. You, you typically don't expect candidates on the state offices to get this deep into things. So, um, and for all our listeners at home, I would definitely recommend checking out, um, this, you know, Heather Hunter's website, so how did you get to have such a robust um, list of goals for office? Because like I say, I think it is something fairly new for, uh, for this area of Florida. So um, how did you guys work that out? Well, it, we looked at um, different campaign websites and we were kind of 
deciding how we wanted to make our website back in May, April, May. And we noticed that on a lot of campaign websites, um, there's kind of a lack of information, um, like a lack of goals. Um, and so we wanted to create a laid out, my campaign manager and I wanted to create a laid out plan for everything. And just to show that we are willing to put in the work that, you know, I'm willing to listen to constituents that, you know, we have a plan and I'm ready to take action. All right. So uh, let's see here. And I, w- I did want to also touch on um, maybe a couple of specific policies. One of the ones that stuck out to me was your idea to do ranked choice of voting. So tell us the, a little bit about the idea of ranked choice voting and how you think that would be a benefit to our democracy here at the state level. Yeah. Um, so ranked cho- choice voting, it's where voters get to kind of rank their candidates from favorite to least favorites. And these vote, the voters or the votes are tallied if one candidate gets 50% of the win. Um, so if no one does the lowest vote or if no one gets that, the lowest vote getter basically gets eliminated and their votes go to the people's second choice. Um, and then if no one gets that 50%, then it's repeated. So this kind of gets rid of the third party, par- third party spoiler effect. Um, it helps ensure that the representative being elected has majority support of the district. And it gives uh, the electorate kind of more of a choice in elections, which I think is definitely something that we need right now. Awesome. So, um, and staying on the subject of uh, election reform, you also um, have a policy to automatically register voters at the age of 18. So um, tell me a little about that policy. So they, they would not have to go to their local DMV or go online to get a registration. Yeah. So as soon as you turn 18, you know, you get a letter in the mail, basically, um, asking if you want to opt in or opt out of an election or of the election process. Um, It's not compulsory. It's more voluntarily, but it makes it a lot more easier for the everyday citizen to be able to register to vote. Um, I think the fact that even we have to register to vote is sort of like voter suppression. You know, some people aren't able to go make the distance to go register to vote. They might not be able to drive. They might not be able to, um, access the internet and, you know, you should be able to, it should be easy to register to vote because this is one of the, the biggest decisions, especially this year that we are ever going to make as a nation. I think everyone should be able to make that decision together. Okay. So if they, um, so if they get this letter in the mail with the opt-in or opt-out, say if they just don't, they just don't do anything, are they, are they then still registered to vote? Um, so it then, I think that would, thinking about it, I think it would be more of an opt out. I think once you um, officially opt in, eligible citizens would be registered to vote. But if you don't do anything, it would be an opt out. Okay, gotcha. So uh, we have that. And um, speaking of um, just voter issues, uh, one of the really big, one of the really big stories out of Florida that's kind of gotten some attention on the national stage was uh, in the 2018 midterms, one of the measures on the ballot was to end uh, disenfranchisement for former felons who had served their sentence. 
And obviously, there's a little bit of a situation going on with that right now in the state of Florida. So uh, what are your thoughts on that issue? And if you are elected to state Senate uh, in November, how would you work to kind of ease that little problem in Tallahassee? Well, yeah. So the 2018 election, I worked a lot to help um, get Amendment 4 passed. And it's unfortunate that our state government is not allowing it even though the majority of Floridians wanted it to happen. Um, I think it's just continuing to push for this to um, allow disenfranchised voters to vote. I think it is, frankly, it's not fair to these people. It's another act of voter suppression, and we need to take a stand against uh, these types of voter suppression. Do you think the office of the governor, in how they handled the... um the passing of the amendment, do you think they have uh, thwarted the will of the people? Um, I, I don't think, I don't think they've done their due diligence to really stand with the word of the people. I think they're acting in their own self-interests because if we have all of these people voting, I feel like we would be able to flip Florida blue much easier than it is right now. Okay. So uh, let's see here. I want to also touch on uh, education while I have you here. So um, tell me, in in the state of Florida, where are we failing in education and um, how specifically can we improve to kind of get ourselves out of this little rut we're in as a state? Yeah, um, I think we really need to invest into our public education system. Um, ideally, I would like to invest a billion dollars into our education system um, spent on construction, renovation, um, giving school teachers a minimum wage of at least $50,000 a year, um, expanding early childhood education programs. Um, let's see, ensuring, I think, especially right now in the pandemic, ensuring every kid in the state of Florida public school system has the technology, school supplies, and food to promote a healthy learning environment. Because right now with kids learning from home, you know, not everyone has internet access, a a computer of their own, a space of their own to learn effectively. And I think that is something that isn't touched upon a lot as much as, you know, other aspects of education. Um, So I think creating a publicly owned statewide high-speed broadband internet system would help with that. You know, more students, since more students are distance learning, we need to make sure that they have a stable internet connection. And um, especially in the more rural areas of Flagler and St. John's County, um, we need to focus on those students because every student deserves an equal chance at education. All right. And you, you, um, you did kind of touch on distance learning there, which, um, of course, has been a very relevant um, topic lately with the coronavirus. Do you think um, across the state, do you think learning, learning um, um, during the pandemic has been generally handed well, as we have had some cases out of schools of both students and teachers? So do you think opening up the schools the way they did was the right idea? Or how, how do you think they could have done that, done that better, if not? Um, I don't believe that we needed to open the schools as early as we did. Um, You know, the state of Florida was one of the last states to really shut down and we're one of the first to open back up. And I don't, I don't think that logic really makes much sense. Um, I don't think 
that sending our children into areas where they have the possibility to get sick and possibly die is the best course of action. You know, we needed to beat this pandemic before sending them back to school. And, you know, that means, you know, instituting a statewide stay at home order, you know, requiring masks on at all times, closing non-essential businesses, stuff like that, so that our students don't have to worry about issues such as, you know, getting sick just by trying to learn. All right. And um, let's see, another thing that you have sort of touched on is you support the idea of having public school class sizes be a little smaller. So for someone who, you know, someone who may not be, you know, have learned about um, the issue of class sizes and how that works, how, how would a smaller class size, do you think, improve the, um, the dynamic in the classroom and the learning environment for kids? Yeah. Um, so, you know, growing up in the public school system, we had up to 20 to 30 students in our classroom and, and, you know, having one single teacher have to individually work with all of those students, that's very overwhelming. I mean, just thinking about that, that is very overwhelming. And Florida voters, even two decades, two decades ago, became so fed up with that. They voted to amend the Constitution to correct that program, program, or sorry, problem. Um, They knew that smaller class sizes would benefit all students, and I think it would as well. You know, it's easier to work with students individually. It's easier to, you know, find uh, where students are struggling and get them the help that they need. Um, You know, going to Flagler College, our class sizes were much smaller, and I was able to get to know my professor and work with them if I had a problem and I wasn't scared to do that. And I think that helped my education much more than it would if I had, you know, 30 plus students in a classroom. All right. So also on your um, website to, um, to also to uh, move on to uh, civil rights. So one of the, um, one of the bullet points you have is on black issues. You talk about wanting to do criminal justice reform. In your mind, what does a what is how should the criminal justice system be different here in Florida? How would you want to go about reforming that? And yeah, like what would that look like? Uh, yeah, I think it would start by holding our officers accountable. Um, you know, body cameras on at all times, um, citizen review boards, um, empowering citizen complaints, not throwing them away or just ignoring them completely because you know. As citizens living in this district, we know it well, and we should be able to be heard on issues that we're concerned about. Um, you know, other than that, there's uh, so many issues we could um, or we need to reform, like ending mandatory minimums, abolishing private pr- prisons that are basically profiting off of mass incarceration. Um, They want to continue having people in their prisons to work and it it makes them money. The more that the more people that come in their prison, they don't want to, um, they don't want to work to make sure that someone isn't coming back. They want to make sure that they come back and, um, incentivize that, um, 
ending cash bail, abolishing the death penalty, um, ending solitary confinement. Um, I think all of those things are something that we need to work on to um, reform our criminal justice system. All right. So like I say, you're, you're totally against um, for-profit prisons. That's, um, that's definitely been an issue that's gaining a little bit of steam lately. I've noticed getting a little bit of support because, um, you know, it's coming to light how other countries kind of aim more toward rehabilitation and they see lower incarceration rates than the United States, which I believe, I think has the highest incarceration rate in the world. It does. If I'm not, yeah, there you go. Thought so. So, um, Definitely, that is starting to grow a little bit as a, a hotbed issue. But, um, you know, so that would be, you know, definitely something we might see happen in the next few years here. Um, do you think we need to see comprehensive changes to the, uh, the police forces as well? Like, obviously, defunding the police is a big topic a lot of people are pushing for and a lot of people are pushing against. Um, do you think we need to change how we do police? here uh, in Florida and even in America? I do. Um, I think people have been using the term defund the police against us, but I, I we don't want to defund the police. Um, I think rather reallocating funds um, to make their job a little bit easier and make them not have to go to cert- go into certain situations that they may not be prepared for. Um, in that, you know, empowering social programs and empowering, um, you know, other, um, how do I say this? Just other organizations to work with the police and send them in, whether that be a social worker or a counselor into those more intense situations so that there's no more deaths that occur like that. Um, And I think that's something that, you know, I feel like I think other countries are already doing and I think a couple other states have been trying out. I think it's something that we need to do. And I just so to um, decrease the amount of deaths that we have in Florida due to police shootings. All right. You touch on um, sending other like types of social workers into situations where maybe a police officer might not be needed. So in some of those situations, like say, I don't know, maybe a drug overdose is a scenario I've seen people point out. So, um, so there you go. There's the plan to send in a social worker, you know, have the paramedics be, you know, the, the main responders to that. Do you think someone who is a victim of an over, overdose, do you think they still ought to be prosecuted um, after, you know, after their immediate health emergency is, um, is dealt with? Do you think that still becomes a law enforcement issue after the fact or um, do you, or how, yeah, how would you go about that? Um, I think with drug overdose and like something like addiction, I think, I don't think, you know, automatically prosecuting them and, you know, throwing them in a prison is the most helpful uh, thing for them. Obviously, I think helping them in the sense of getting them, you know, counseling, helping them with their addiction, getting them the necessary help besides throwing them in prison, I think that's much better for them just so that they don't continue that drug addiction and they get the help they need. And um, yeah. Okay. So that'd be more along the lines of the um, don't legalize, but still decriminalize. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, a lot of these issues with 
certain drugs, it is an addiction issue. And you can't just throw someone in prison and expect them to figure it out for themselves. That's just asking them to kind of recidivize and put them back in that same situation. These people need programs where they can work towards helping themselves and um, just kind of helping them turn their life around. I don't think um, immediately prosecuting them and throwing them behind bars is the best uh, possible way to do that. All right. So speaking of, um, you know, speaking of healthcare, your, um, your healthcare plan is, um, you do call it a Medicare for all system. And uh, the plan you lay out says, in your words, it would be approximately $2.1 billion a year in spending. So how that would be on the state level. So how would the state of Florida go about paying for that? Where would the, would you be redistributing revenue, creating new revenue stream? Like, yeah, like, what would you say to a voter who immediately would counter with how would we pay for it? (laughs) Yeah, I I get this a lot in my um, campaign. Um, There's plenty of different ways to pay for something like that. Um, I mean, Medicare for all honestly would pay for itself in a few years. Um, But, you know, raising Florida's corporate tax rate from 5.5% to 7.75% alone would save us a billion dollars in revenue a year. Um, Legalizing, taxing, and regulating marijuana would generate an estimated $190 million in revenue per year. Um, Even Medicaid expansion, just accepting the federally funded Medicaid expansion saves the state $162 million a year because we aren't paying, we're only, um, right now the government, the national government's only paying for around 60 to 65%, I believe, of our Medicaid or our um, medical. But with Medicaid expansion, it would go to around... um, 90%. Um, and only the, that remaining 10% would be covered by the states. Um, so I think there's plenty of ways to pay for it. We just kind of have to just think a little bit and, uh, reorganize our budget. And I think, uh, bring the focus back to our constituents. All right. So um, there has been, um, in talking about Medicare for All, there have been members of the Democratic Party on the national stage, such as Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, who favor, you know, traditional Medicare for All as a replacement to private insurance. Others, maybe on the slightly more moderate side, including Vice President Biden, who's now our nominee, have advocated doing it as more of a public option deal. So do you think for Florida, it is better for the state to still have that option of private insurance, or do you want to <clears throat> ax the uh, the private sector entirely from healthcare? Um, I think, of course, everyone should be able to have an option how they want their healthcare, but I think there needs to be a, a fallback for that. You know, people, you shouldn't have to uh, walk <laughs> into a hospital and be worried about how you're going to pay for your bills or just have to immediately bring out your credit card and pay for a bill. I think um, this is a cost-effective plan. I think this is the easiest way to cover Floridians in the state of Florida. Of course, there should be another option, but I think this would kind of cover all of our bases. All right. And, um, so speaking of um, speaking of uh, paying for things, as a good good segue, um, you also have a very um, a very ambitious environmental policy, and you know that being you know for Florida certainly environmental issues are 
at the forefront of um, of priorities, really on both sides of the aisle. Even Governor DeSantis, um, in his you know in his campaign, he touted his you know plans for the environment, which on the national stage is a little unusual for a Republican. So um, so yeah, you have big you know big aspirations on the environment. You do support a state Green New Deal. Um, how how would things change in Florida on the day to day level? If we did implement a Green New Deal, would people see higher costs of having to pay for the new technology as it's integrated? And um, you know, maybe if there is a higher cost, is there an offset somewhere else? Um, what what would that what would a Green New Deal Florida look like in the everyday lives of the average Floridian? Um, I think well, starting with costs, I think paying a little bit upfront to save our state is is the best that we can do right now. Um, and it will save us in the long run. Um, I think that, um, we need to start, um, you utilizing better practices, better environmentally friendly practices. If we want to continue living in the state of Florida, which I would like to continue living in the state of Florida for the rest of my life without having to worry about, you know, sea level rise or, um, clean, unclean water. Um, and I think that's something that Floridians should worry about. Um, I don't, my opponent is, has not really made a stance on the environment. Uh, I think that we need a large focus on it. And I'm a part of an effort called the Florida Climate and Economic Defense Initiative to ensure that the state of Florida is protected and uh, works towards a carbon negative solution um, within 10 years. Um, and this initiative starts with the state of Florida recognizing that climate change is real and climate change is going to be a prevalent pro- uh, prevalent problem in the state of Florida. And I think that um, starting with that, I think that's going to be a, a huge, huge um, success for us just recognizing it and then working towards mitigating those effects of climate change that are already happening is the second step. And I, it may cost us some money, but with the plans that I've laid out on my website, you know, um, accepting uh, the Medicaid expansion, um, legalizing marijuana, all these, these uh, different ways to raise money that will pay for it and it will save us in the long run. All right. And, um, you know, sticking with the environment, I'm curious as someone who used to work in uh, wildland fire, um, wildfires are kind of becoming, along with hurricanes, sort of the biggest headline effects of climate change in America today. Those are the things we're getting hit by in the last year. We obviously, California was just decimated by fires this year. Um, we had a number of really powerful hurricanes hit the um hit the Gulf Coast and Atlantic states. But um, but no, specifically on on wildfires, I, I am curious, um, do you think Florida is soon going to be a little bit more like California when it comes to fires? And uh, do you think in dealing with climate change, we have to you know change maybe our approach to mitigation of fire as you know it is an extremely destructive um, phenomenon for you know property loss and loss of life. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was wondering what your take on uh, wildfire prevention was. Um, yeah, I think um, obviously it's not 
as much as a problem right now as it is in California, but I think everything, you know, wildfires, hurricanes, um, all of these will continue to grow in strength and in um, numbers as we continue to ignore the effects or ignore um, fighting climate change. And yes, it, it will get worse if we don't uh, start um, doing more environmentally friendly practices. And I don't think that starts at just a citizen. I think that goes all the way up to the large corporations who are um, really the cause of these problems. You know, you and I using a, a plastic straw isn't as large as an effect as corporations who are um, committing or um, adding to climate change every single day. And by by a rapid amount, I think, you know, we we just have a, we have a lot of work to do with the environment. Um, if and if we don't do that soon, you know, we will have those larger wildfires. We will have, you know, extremely extremely strong hurricanes, and um, we we really need to take action now. All right, and um, so the last. Um you know, kind of big topic I do want to touch on is uh, unemployment. So of all the ways Florida has kind of failed during the pandemic, maybe none has been so destructive to the everyday lives of Floridians as our unemployment system. So I, I think the big question a lot of Floridians want to know is what happened? How should this have been done? How, how could we do it better next time? If there is a next time, God forbid. Um, I think that starts with having an unemployment um, website that actually works. Uh, at the start of the pandemic, this was a huge problem and it, it continues to be to this day. I mean, I remember going on Twitter and there were people complaining that, it, you know, it's it's inaccessible, it's broken, and it, it was not ready to have over a million people on it and trying to get their benefits and, you know, that stems from uh, Governor Rick Scott in 2013 when he made changes that crippled an already lacking unemployment system. Um, it's designed to fail and it shouldn't be that way. It should be very easy to access a website where you can uh, receive unemployment to feed your family. It, it should be easy as that. Um, but obviously it wasn't. Um, I'm I'm so grateful for many of the leaders in the state of Florida, like Representative Ana Eskamani, who has been working every single day to make sure constituents get their unemployment, get the money they need to feed themselves, feed their families, and to be able to know um, that they'll be okay in the next couple of weeks. Um, but there, I mean, I think this whole pandemic, we could have done it in many, in a totally different way with the unemployment system. And I think, you know, requiring the FDEO to report the number of Floridians they have failed to reach is a good start. Um, ensuring all benefits are retroactively paid, dating back to the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, increasing SNAP benefits for all Floridians to establish a base level of comfort and stability for Florida families. Um, double the weekly benefit cap back to 550. Um, and then double the benefit longevity back to 26 weeks. I think that would be a great start. Um, but we really need to 
continue to keep our constituents in the know, let them know how we're doing, um, when their benefits are coming, just so that they have a little more comfort and trust in the unemployment system. Um, in Do you think in 2013, when this modern system was forged, do you think it was more a mis-execution of a well-intended idea, or do you think it was made purposely hard for Floridians to deal with? I think it was made purposely difficult, um, like a lot of systems in our in the state of Florida. It was deliberately made more difficult to receive unemployment, and it reduced benefits to bail out Floridian businesses and cut their taxes. Um, it and it obviously it's, it's just ridiculous. It's we failed our Floridians, and I think that is very telling. And will I think it the unemployment system? This crisis will play a big hand in this election. All right. So yeah, unemployment. I think a lot of people would uh, definitely, you know, definitely be able to relate to that. You know, I, at one point I had to go through the website and it was indeed a nightmare. I think it's the kind of thing where it's like, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you had to deal with that website, you do not have fond opinions of it. But um, so yeah, that covers, uh, you know, a few of the important topics for the election. So uh, Heather Hunter running as a Democrat to um, defeat incumbent Travis Hudson from Florida State Senate District 7. And um, just last thing I want to touch on is uh, Heather. So just go ahead and tell people how they can vote for you on Election Day. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, first of all, um, obviously voting by mail, voting on November 3rd, um, going to your uh, early voting locations. Um, and making sure that your vote counts, um, going on the uh, website, making sure that your box is ticked. Um, especially with voting by mail right now, it's important to make sure that your signature matches the signature on your uh, driver's license or ID card. Um, and voting all the way down the ballot is, I feel like, the most important thing this election, because as much as it is important to vote for president, uh, vice president, um, the local elections are where the change really happens. And I hope to be able to make that positive change when I'm elected. All right. Awesome. So that is, uh, that is our show guys, Heather Hunter. Thank you so much for coming on and guys, uh, don't, don't forget to vote. Go to iwillvote.com if you need to figure out where, how, when, why to vote. And, um, yeah, thanks again, Heather. Thank you.